Good morning, everyone. Uh, the scripture reading for this morning is found in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish, foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creator, the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Thanks, Aaron. Um, before we look at the word, let me open us in a word of prayer. Uh, Lord, uh, we're grateful for, in the midst of a pandemic, your goodness to us. And uh, Lord, this could have been so much worse. Um, as bad as the coronavirus is, uh, Lord, you have given us technology to deal with it, and we're grateful for that. And Lord, we're especially grateful that we found a way to continue to meet, that we found a way to meet together. And Lord, what we're going to see today is how important that is, how, how really central that is for us to gather together. And so thank you for making a, making a way for us. Thank you for making it possible. And Lord, we pray that even though we are not in the same room, Lord, Holy Spirit, would you come and be with us? Would you show us your word? Would you open it to us and help us to see and to understand? And to that end, Lord, I pray that your words would shine through. And Lord, my words, where they depart from your intention, that they would fall flat. We want more of you. And so, Lord, show us that, we pray. Uh, bless the, the preaching of your word now, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. So we're just beginning to scratch the surface of, um, of uh, the book of Romans. And last week we did the kind of introduction, kind of went through it briefly. Um, what I said last week is I, Paul wrote Romans not because the Romans had a theological issue that they were wrestling with, like the Galatians and, and the Judaizers and circumcision and dietary laws and stuff. We don't see any evidence that that was the problem with Rome. So why did he write to Rome? Well, last week we kind of looked at it. We found out that he mentions to the Romans that he wants to press on to Spain. So he's, he says he's finished his work in the Mediterranean, pardon me, in the Mediterranean basin, and he doesn't want to go back over where, where other people are spreading the gospel. So he wants to take it out to the frontier. And so he's looking to Spain and then possibly into Gaul and the rest of Europe. Um, so the reason, my theory is the reason that he wrote to the Romans was because if he goes to Spain, Antioch will be far too far away to be a home base for him. That can't be a place that he can return and recharge and go back out again. Rome would be much closer and would make more sense. So I think he's writing to the Romans um, because he's planning to come and visit them. And what he wants to do is say, um, would you be my home base? And, and can we work together with the gospel? So what he's telling them in the book of Romans really is he's laying out his gospel for them. He wants them to see and to understand and be on board with them because where he's going 
into Spain and those areas is going to be predominantly Gentile. And will they be on board? Will they support him as he goes? So that's what I said from the introduction, what I think the, the point of the book of Romans is. The theme, uh, he tells us right off the bat, I mean, verse 16, he puts it right there. And then what he's going to do is spend the rest of the book unpacking it. So the theme of the book of Romans is salvation to everyone who believes. Um, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So he sets up these three things that he's going to work through the book on. Salvation. Well, we need to be saved. What do we need to be saved from? Um, it, it, there is a problem that we need to be redeemed from, that we need to be rescued from. So the first part is salvation. And he's going to explain what the problem is that we need to be saved from. Then he's making the promise that salvation is offered. It's possible. You can be saved. Well, who can be saved? Who then can be redeemed? Who can get away from this horrible problem that we all have? Well, he says everyone. Uh, it's not one class or one type. It's not just the Jews or just the Gentiles. It's not just people who are rich enough or people who are well-behaved enough. Everyone can be saved. Well, how are we saved then? What good deed do we have to do? What, what noble quest do we have to go on? What huge sacrifice do we have to give up? Well, what we have to do to be saved Everyone, what everyone has to do to be saved is to believe. So that's the theme of the book of, of Romans. And so that's where we're at. So now where we're going to start in verse 18 is with the problem. What is the issue? What's wrong? What, what is broken in us? And that's where it starts. So um, that's where we're going to go today. We'll begin to scratch into this, where this the, the section lays out pretty much from verse 18 today all the way through the end of chapter 4 is where he's wrestling with and dealing with the question of sin. Uh, what we're going to see today is he's going to start with the problem of the Gentiles. Um, and for Jewish minds, that really is a problem. How can the Gentiles be saved? Uh, so he's going to start there, but he will get to the Jews and the problem that the Jews have too. Um, it, it, that'll come up. He'll deal with that around chapter 3. So there, there it is. So what is the problem? What's at the root of all of this? What is the issue that's, that's broken? Um, that's where he's going to lead us. So um, this week uh, here at the house, I was working on a project, an electronics project, and um, I needed a power supply uh, just to power a device that I was messing with. And I happened to have one in the closet. It was still in the box. I'd never opened it. It was brand new. So I took it out, opened it up. I said, you know, I'll just use it. I only need it for about a day or so. Then I'll put it back and put it away. So I took it out, powered my device, played with it for a while. When I tried to put that thing back in the box, it wouldn't fit. <laughs> I put it in and then I put all the other things that were in the box with it and the sides are bulged and the top wouldn't stay closed. And, and I'm like, I know they came out of there. I was there when I took them out. Why won't they fit back in that box? Um, and, and that's not just that one box. Anytime it seems, well, most of the time I, I open something, I can't fit it back in the box correctly. And you've probably seen that around your house too, where you've got a box and things are poking out of it in weird ways. And you're like, I know it came out of there. It should go back in. Um, have you ever noticed that your heart can be like that too? You can have all of these desires and these, these longings and, and you can't seem to get them all to fit in your heart at the same time. Like maybe you want to be, uh, um, want to go skydiving. That would be great. That's, that's a, a desire that you have, but you really are horrified of heights. And so you've got these things, they don't seem to fit together. Or you want to be this good person, this one particular type of person, but when it comes down to it, you always fail. You always, you know, you can't quite make it. The desire and the action don't fit in the box. And what we're going to see today is that the problem is our hearts are like those boxes. And, and we can't seem to get everything to fit in. 
Um, but there's a key. There's a way that it, that, that it will fit if we do it right. And that's what Paul is going to begin by diagnosing for us is what the problem is. So verse 18, he starts with the saying, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Um, this ties really tightly into the previous verse because verse 17 says, For the righteousness of God is revealed from and then 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from. So you can see Paul is, is kind of drawing this out. We saw last week that the righteousness of God is, is God's own inherent righteousness. It's revealed, it, it's shown, it's given to us from faith for faith. But that's the good news. The bad news is his wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And those would be two key words that the Jewish Christians would hear and think that's, that's the Gentiles. They're ungodly. They don't believe in, in Yahweh, the true and living God, and their behavior is unrighteous. And so God's wrath is revealed against them. And it says that it's revealed against them because they are the ones who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. So that raises a, an immediate question. And I think Paul is aware of that and, begins and, and answers it immediately. If we're talking about the Gentiles, how is it that their unrighteousness suppresses the truth. Doesn't it deny it or miss it or it, it's completely lacking the truth? How does it suppress the truth? And why would God have wrath against them if he hasn't revealed to them what he's revealed to the Jews? The Jews have God's law. They have the prophets who came and speak, spoke to them. They had Moses who, who revealed what God was giving them at Mount Sinai. They have the 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 uh, Torah, the law, they have the Old Testament, they have the prophets, they have the promises, they have the covenants. God would be mad at them if, they, if they're suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, but the Gentiles lack all of that. So why on earth would God have wrath for them? They, they, don't they have uh, an excuse for being unrighteous? It hasn't been revealed. Well, Paul immediately dives in and answers that question for us, because the very next verse, he says, for what can be known about God is plain to them. So the Gentiles who don't have divine revelation, there is still what can be known. Not everything about God can be, known, or can be known, but what can be known is plain. It's not obscure. It's not hard to see. What can be known is plain to them. Why? Well, because God has shown it to them. So the, the, the truth of the matter is, is that to know God, it is a revealed religion. He has to show himself. Um, and he has shown himself. He, he's made himself plain. He's made himself obvious. Well, how? I thought we needed the Bible for that, and I thought that that's what the Jews got with the scriptures. Well, he continues on. He's, he's saying, for the Gentiles, where did they get that? Verse 20, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So what he's saying there is these Gentiles who don't have the benefit of the prophets, who don't have the benefit of the scriptures, of his law, they still know something about God because God has revealed it to them. He has shown them two things, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature. So his eternal power and his divine nature are available. They are shown. They are, they are, can be seen. How? Well, they, they're invisible, so you can't perceive them with your normal eyes, you can't look at something and see it because they're invisible attributes, but they can be clearly perceived because their function, their outreach, their, their application is seen in creation. Since the creation, it's been seen in everything that's been made. 
And so when you look out at the world, you see there's something going on here. And I'm so glad that Ramey read Acts 17 and, and, and kind of raised some of those questions because when we look at the natural world, apart from the, the, the divine revelation, there's still enough there to see and to understand who God is. We get some of who he is. You can see his eternal power. The, this universe didn't leap into being on accident out of nothing. Uh, contra the Darwin, uh, Darwinists, it, it came from something. Something had to have done it. Uh, something created it. His, his eternal power did that. And his divine nature in this creation will see that there's a lot of things going on. So this week I was watching a, a, a special on called The Planets from PBS. And one of the things that really captured my attention was they were talking about Mercury. And so as they're discussing Mercury, you know, it's closest to the sun. It's this baked rock. It's, it's just not a very nice place at all. But one of the problems that they have with Mercury is the crust on it is too thin and the core is too big. And they're wondering how on earth could that thing form that close to the sun like that? And so the theory is, well, actually Mercury formed out here by earth. It was in this general area that it formed. And as it's forming, as it's cooling, as the, the, the core is, is settling down, something slammed into it, knocked most of its mantle off and sent it hurling toward the sun. And so when you look at Mercury, it's got this really odd orbit. It, it doesn't circle the way we do. It's, it's kind of off kilter a little bit. So that must have been thrown there and it's baked and now it doesn't have enough crust and everything. And that's horrible. Well, then what about Venus? Well, Venus is called Earth's sister. It's very much like the Earth, except it looks like there was runaway greenhouse gases. And so the atmosphere is so thick and so dense, it traps the heat in and it's just, it's even hotter than Mercury, which is closer to the sun. Um, and Mars, Mars is a, a twin planet for Earth as well, but it's for some reason lost its atmosphere. It just got blown away by something. But Earth is sitting here in this perfect zone where it somehow, and this is what they said in the documentary, somehow it managed to retain liquid water. For all of these millennia, it's held on to its liquid water and it's, and it's in this, what we call the habitable zone where it's not too hot, not too cold and all this. And it's all by accident, right? It just, no purpose, no, no reason to it. It just kind of happens. And one of the things that, it's, maybe it's just me, one of the things that always argues against this, it's all a big accident, is when I look at trees. I don't know why it's trees, but I look at a tree and you see how complex this thing is with all these branches and all these leaves and the symmetry of it, how it, a leaf kind of folds itself out. And then you look down and the roots go into the dirt and they pick up water and they make leaves and make the tree grow from dirt, from just stuff that it's in. And I think if the universe just exploded and happened, if planets just bumped into each other and we happen to get left behind in, in the habitable zone, explain to me a tree. Why is it so elegant? Why is it so organized and so beautiful? How did that happen? Um, it just doesn't seem satisfying. And so um, there was a, a, a Yale computer science professor, David Galertner, and uh, he wrote last spring, just last year, an uh, article called Giving Up Darwin. He's not a believer. He's not a, he's not a Christian. But when he looks at Darwinism and this idea that it all just happened by accident, he says, that just doesn't seem satisfying. The odds are way too great. The numbers just go off the scale to say that this all happened by accident. So in his article, Giving Up Darwin, he wrote, intelligent design as Mayer, Stephen Mayer wrote a book about it. Intelligent design as Mayer describes it is a simple and direct response to, the scientific, to a specific event, 
the Cambrian explosion. The Cambrian explosion happened about half a billion years ago. And all of a sudden, in the fossil record, you just see this explosion of life forms. Just boom, out of nowhere. They just, they erupt about 70 million years and then they're gone, which, you know, 70 million years on the scale of billions is next to nothing. And so he says, intelligent design is a direct response to that Cambrian explosion. The theory suggests an intelligent cause intervened to create this extraordinary outburst. By intelligent, Meyer understands conscious. The theory suggests nothing more than that, uh, nothing more about the designer, but where is the evidence? To Meyer and other proponents, that is like asking, after you come across a tree that is split vertically down the center and half burnt up, but where's the evidence of a lightning strike? And, and I think that's what uh, Galeritner is getting at is, what Paul is saying here is, there is enough evidence in creation. As you look around, you can see there, there's enough there to tell you that there's an intelligence behind this. And Galantner says they don't, they don't go any further into it, but I think there's more hints and more clues in creation that can tell us more about this. So when we look at creation, when we look around, it's not like it just happened by accident. That just doesn't sound right. It doesn't feel right. It doesn't look right. This doesn't look like an accident. It looks designed. And that's the theory behind intelligent design is something made this. So when Paul says for what can be known about God is plain to them, he's looking at the, uh, the created order, and he's saying it's plain. It can be seen. You can perceive it from this created order around us that there's something more than just nothing. Um, his, his invisible attributes are there. He, they can be clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So when you look to the Gentiles and you say, well, the Gentiles didn't have divine revelation, um, and, and let's pretend that there is uh, some, uh, some person who just wakes up one morning on, on some deserted, deserted island alone, has no recollection of anything. When he looks around, he doesn't think, well, this has all happened by accident. You know, this is all a big mistake. This, this happened out of nowhere. That person theoretically should be able to look around and say, well, the water is liquid and, and there's food to eat and all of these things and the rain falls at the right time and it feeds the land. And there, there must be something happening, something going on here. But the problem is they don't. So when he looks to the Gentiles and he says, why has God got wrath against the Gentiles? He says, the reason is because they can tell there is a God. They can tell something about this God, but um, they, they don't worship him. And so that what he says next is, so they are without excuse. So why is God's wrath revealed against uh, the Gentiles? Why would be God be angry with the Gentiles if he hasn't um, revealed himself to them? Because he's revealed himself to them in creation. Uh, that's something that we call general revelation or natural revelation. God created the world in order to shore his glory. So there is enough of him in the world to be seen and perceived and to understand so that no one can look out at the sky and say, I don't, I have an excuse. Lord, you didn't tell me. You didn't show me. Paul says right there, they are without excuse. Um, that's their problem. Here's where this goes. So this is what they've been given. They've been given this general revelation. It's enough to know and understand God. And so here's where it goes. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. So that word for honor, the word behind honor there is glory. They didn't give God glory or give him thanks. They didn't glorify God or give him thanks. 
They look around the world, they can see that there's a divine presence, that there is some intelligence behind this, and yet they refuse to honor him, to glorify him, or to give thanks. And when you have that kind of cognitive dissonance in you, something happens, and this is what Paul describes, they became futile in their thinking and did not honor him as God, or they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. So that's the result of looking around, seeing that there is a God, and refusing to acknowledge him as God is your thinking becomes futile. You have to be really super intelligent to look at this and to figure out a way to say that this is all just an accident. Um, a dummy wouldn't come up with that. You gotta be really smart, but the thinking is not that bright. It is what the Bible calls is futile thinking. It, it can't yield the truth. It can't get to the right results. It's, it's chasing after itself, but it's not just their thoughts. Uh, James K.A. Smith in his book, um, You Are What You Love, he, he reminds us we're not just brains on sticks. We're not just thinking devices. We are loving devices. And so that's what Paul says is he says their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. So it winds up not, start, not residing exclusively in the brain. It actually goes down into the heart. There's something wrong with the heart. That, that heart has become darkened, claiming to be fools, or claiming to be wise, they became fools. And here's the problem. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. Now, if we're talking about the Gentiles, what does that mean? That's talking about worship. It's talking about worshiping idols. They look around at the universe. They look around at the world around them. They recognize that there is a divine being who has put this together. There's an intelligence that has driven this. And instead of worshiping that, they worship the creation. Instead of saying, there's something bigger than all of us, they worship things resembling mortal men, birds, and animals. That's why Paul says it resides in the heart. So unbelief, this, this, um, this ungodliness, and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth, it's not primarily, it's not first and foremost an intellectual problem. It is ultimately and fundamentally, it is a heart problem. Their hearts are darkened. They claim to be wise. They're fools. They exchange the glory of the immortal God, and they worship the creation. And so when you look to the, to the Gentiles and say, well, why is God mad at them? It's because they are worshiping the creation rather than the creator. They're, they're worshiping these invented, these man-made things. And so that's where the wrath of God comes down. That's where it winds up. And so that raises a question, well, why is God wrathful at not being worshipped? Why is it that, that uh, worship, not worshiping God would bring his wrath? Wouldn't that bring his pity? Wouldn't he say, oh, these poor people, they are so confused. They're worshiping birds, for heaven's sake. Let me come and explain this to them. Um, well, as he's already said, there's enough of, the, of him in Revelation, that, or in uh, general Revelation and creation to know that, that he is who he is. Um, but one of the problems is, well, is he just being finicky about worship? Is he just saying, um, um, you need to worship me, and you're, I'm not getting enough worship, so I'm really mad at you guys. Uh, is that what's going on? Well, we have to kind of back into the Trinity on this. What was God doing before creation, before the very first act of creation? Was he sitting there going, man, I'm bored. I wish, I wish somebody would come and tell me how wonderful I am. I'm, I'm so, so insecure in myself that I need somebody to come and tell me how wonderful I am. Well, no, because we have not a solitary God who would have been alone all that time. We have a trinity. 
we have one God in three persons, and these three persons existed in a, in a beautiful state of love and admiration for each other. They, they saw the beauties, the perfection, the, the ultimate glory of who each person of the Trinity was. And so they had harmony, they had love, they had relationship, they had each other, they had community as one God and three persons. And so when we consider God's worship, what you can't think, what you can't arrive at in a Trinitarian formula is God wants to be worshiped because he's lonely or God needs worship because he's not sure about who he is or he's, is insecure. Uh, one of the things that C.A.S. Lewis said, and he's, he wrote a book on the Psalms, and he said what he never understood about the Psalms is it sounded like God was this vain woman who was saying, praise me, praise me, praise me, because she was so insecure about herself. She needed to have that praise. And so is that what's going on? Is that what's happening? Is that why God is angry and, and brings wrath on those who won't worship him? Well, it, it's not. It can't be because that would deny the nature of who, who God is. And that's the very issue of the thing, isn't it? His divine nature has been shown. And so then why does he bring wrath on those who won't worship? Here's why. Listen to this. He says, therefore, God gave them up. And this is talking about they wouldn't worship him. They worship false gods. So what did God do? God gave them up to the lusts of their heart, uh, to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Wrong worship leads to ungodliness and unrighteousness. God will give them up to the impurity of their heart, to the sounding of their bodies among themselves. Why? Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped. You see, the heart of the problem here is not an intellectual issue. It is the heart. They, he gave them up to the impurity and the lust of their heart and to, uh, to a lie about God, and they worshiped and served the, the creature rather than the creator. So that's the problem. So what's going on here is the problem of the human heart at this point is what Augustine called disordered loves. They're, they're out of line. They're out of order. The thing that you should love primarily, chiefly, gets bucked down the list to maybe seven or eight. And you put other things in that place, and they're out of order. This is that picture of that box and try to put the parts back in. I know they were in there once. And there's a right way to get them in, and I didn't get them in the right way, and so I couldn't close the box. The same thing is going on with the human heart, is the loves, the desires, the, the things that we are passionate about are not in the right order, and so they don't fit. So this is how Augustine explains it. This is from the uh, City of God, book uh, 15. He says, but if the creator is truly loved, that is, if he himself is loved and not another thing in his stead, he cannot be evilly loved. So if we love God and not something in his place, if we really love God, that can't be a bad thing. We do well to love that which, when we love it, makes us live well and virtuously, so that it seems to me that it is a brief but true definition of virtue to say it is the order of love. So why is God's wrath revealed against, or revealed from heaven against unrighteousness and ungodliness? Why is that rooted in worship? Because we don't take the idea of worship and isolate it in our being. We don't, we don't partition that off and say, that has nothing to do with the rest of my life. What I worship is my own business, and, and it doesn't affect anything. Uh, it is central to who we are. It moves right to the middle. It's at the center of who we are, because if we have false worship, it leads to false living, to unrighteous living. Why? Because those, those passions, those desires are out of order. We're not loving God first and man second, 
and then things third, we've moved them around. And when we do that, it's like the gears aren't grinding right. They're, they're, they're mashing and they're, they're cre uh, um, grinding and, and coming apart because we're trying to make this thing fit when we won't put it in the right order. It's, it's all out of order. Wrong worship leads to wrong living. And so that kind of raises a question. Um, I think we all know some really wonderful people who are not Christians. Um, I've said it before, Mormons are some of the best people to have as neighbors. They're, the, the truly devout Mormons are really good folks. They're really nice to have around. Um, the vast majority of Muslims are not the Islamists who are out blowing up people and terrorists. The vast, vast majority of Muslims are really nice people. Um, but they don't worship Jesus. So how is it that they're good people? Does that kind of disprove this? Well, here's the problem with that. If you talk to a Mormon and you ask them about what is the most important or what is, what is really going on, if you can spend some time with them and get them to the truth, what they're living for is if I live the right kind of life, if I do the right kind of things, then when I die, I will ascend and I will get my own planet. And I will have this planet where I'll live and, and everything will be really nice there. And I'll have all these animals and all these people and, and I'll get to be their God and it'll be wonderful. Um, that in and of itself is an insufficient reason to live a good life because what's the ultimate purpose in that? Me, what I get, what I'm going to uh, desire, what I'm going to uh, achieve by this. And when you put that kind of pressure on, it doesn't change the heart. It doesn't change what you desire and what you love and what you're after. It becomes much more selfish. So on the outside, they look wonderful. But what we can't see, what we don't know what's going on is on the inside, it's, well, I can't wait to get my planet. Or I, I can't wait to um, you know, have my way because their heart hasn't been changed. Or the Muslims, um, the, I'm not talking about the Islamists and blowing stuff up. I'm talking about just your average everyday Muslim. They're, they're living this life that Allah has told them, the five pillars and doing all these good things and giving tithes and, or alms to people and, and all of that kind of stuff. Why? Is it because they will get to know Allah better? Well, no, Allah is inscrutable. We can't know him. He's so utterly different. He's other. What we're counting on is just getting on his good side so we get to paradise at the end. So it's not because I want more of Allah. It's more I want more for me. I want the good stuff for me. And so externally, they may look really nice, but internally, the heart is still focused on the self. And so the most grotesque, the most distorted, the most outrageous example of that is the Islamist, is the, the terrorists who are blowing people up because they think that will get them to a more sure place in, in paradise. Um, that's how greedy that can be. That's what the greed can look like. So when we don't worship rightly, when our hearts are not ordered correctly, when our loves are out of order, what the result of that is, is that the lust of our hearts and the dishonoring of our bodies happens. We look for since that one thing that we put in position one isn't God, it won't satisfy. It won't carry the day. It won't last forever. And so we find other things to try to fill a gap. And that's where the unrighteousness comes from. So why is God's wrath revealed from heaven against ungodliness and unrighteousness? Why does that manifest itself primarily in worship? Because if we're not worshiping rightly, we're going to find other things to plug into that place. We're going to have to wrestle to put other things in there because we want that. So here's, here's Paul's rationale on this. Here's how he's thinking about this. Just quoting a couple of verses. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give him thanks. They didn't worship. 
Therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to, gave up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity and dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Why? Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. That's the problem. That's the issue. So is it possible to externally worship God in an orthodox way and still have this, this messed up heart, this desire that's all upside down? Absolutely. Absolutely. In Matthew 15, Jesus says, you hypocrites, talking to the Pharisees, you hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So even in looking, trying to, trying to look uh, orthodox and, and worship rightly, there's still a way if the heart is wrong, but their hearts are far from me. If your heart is still wrong, it can still be a problem. And, and so that's why we have to get those things back in the box correctly. That's why we have to get them in the right way or the box won't close. Now, what we're seeing today, so imagine the, the Gentiles in that day, they're worshiping false gods. They're worshiping all these other things they have. Some of their worship practices are disgusting. Um, their their uh, uh, ethos of marriage and of sex and of of all these other things, the, the, the dignity of human beings is all out of whack because they're worshiping wrong. Um, what about today? Do, what's the biggest threat today for us? What do we face? Um, is it, as uh, uh, Galantner was talking about, the, the problem of um, Darwinism? And, you know, Darwinism is just wrecking people's faith as the, the, ad, the uh, um, new atheists are, are proposing it. Actually, it's not. it's not. It's not the biggest threat right now. It was for a while, but um, eventually that kind of just peters out. Uh, there was an article that just came out today in what's called the Public Discourse, and what it says is, today, however, the greatest threat to Christianity is not found in the arguments of the atheist, but in the assumptions of the apathetic. The danger is not a hostile reception of, um, is not a hostile reception of belief in God, but an incurious indifference to the idea. So what we're facing is not they're worshiping something else that is uh, opposed to, to God. It's they just don't care about God. And so my theory on that, I, I haven't read the whole article yet. It just came out. But my theory is one of the biggest contributors to that is the new media, social media and streaming services on demand, all of that. What I think is going on, why people are apathetic, because you, you talk to somebody about God and they just don't care. They're just not interested. It's not my thing. Not, not something I really uh, want to talk about. Um, the reason is, is it's, it doesn't deny the problem of the heart. What it is, is in the new media, things are happening so fast and changing so fast and so quickly. You can have anything you want right when you want it. You don't have to wait till it airs on Thursday night at eight on channel four. Now you can just click it and it's there. Um, social media is this tumbling turmoil of, of memes and pictures and videos and, and thoughts and opinions and all of this, that what's happening is, is those things churn over so fast, we don't have time to notice that we're bored with them. We don't have time to go, well, I just, I, you know, that's not really interesting anymore. It's constantly popping up. It's like popcorn in an air popper, just constantly something new is coming out. And we just don't have the time to, to slow down and think about that and say, well, this doesn't satisfy me. This isn't, this isn't something beautiful and good. This is stupid. Um, we, we just don't have the opportunity to do it because the new media is so fast. So what's the answer here? How, what, 
this is the bad news. How do I get the stuff back in the box, back at the beginning? Well, the first bit of good news is we have God on our side in that. And so God is working in us that we're not just like those pagans, like the, the, the uh, Gentiles of Paul's day that only have general revelation. We're not even like the Jews of, of the uh, before Christ who only had the Old Testament. We've got the New Testament as well. So we've got this all together for us, presenting this to us. But we have to take care because the issue is not primarily our mind. The issue is primarily our heart. And so one of the things that we have to do is we have to mind our heart. We have to pay attention to it. We have to tend it. We have to weed it. We have to feed it. And so we have all of these great things that God has given us. He has, as we heard last week, he's given us the spirit. He's a seal. He's a down payment. He has given us a new heart, but it's encased in a box that it doesn't fit in. This body hasn't been raised yet. And so the body is still there. We'll get to the idea of the flesh uh, as we go through. Paul will use that word quite a bit. But what, we're, what we've got is we've got this struggle between the spirit, the heart, and the body, and they're, they're wrestling. So what can we do about that? How can we get our, our, our desires in order? How can we get our passions lined up right so that they fit in the box correctly? Well, what we can do is what we did today, is we can sing. What we need to be reminded of is when God says that what was available to them was his eternal power and his divine attributes, what we need to remember is his divine attributes are beautiful. They're what we're designed to crave. We're, we're designed to desire. We're designed to worship these divine attributes. And so like I mentioned with the Trinity, there is beautiful harmony within the Trinity. There's community. There's difference. There's other people who can, you can love, you can honor, you can respect. There is um, the, the Son submitting to the Father and loving the Father and doing what the Father says. There is the Spirit who's in, interacting between the Father and the Son. These are beautiful divine things. They're the things that we long for. What we're missing right now because of the pandemic, there's, there's community there in the Trinity. And that's what we're missing. And that's how we know that it's good is because that's what we're craving. That's what we're after. There's communication. We had to create this in order to have communication during this pandemic while we're supposed to be separated. There's communication there. There's all of these divine attributes. And what we can forget is that they're beautiful. We begin to think, just take them for granted. Well, you know, that's just the way God is. It's, it's no big deal. It's, you know, I'm kind of like that. It's no big deal. That's why we have to do things like sing together. We have to put them in wonderful words. When we sang that first song, I was just so happy to be singing it because it puts in such a beautiful way, this is who God is. This is what's so marvelous about him. This is what's so beautiful. We need to be singing to each other. We need to be singing about God. We need to be singing about his divine attributes and his beauty and his glory. We need to be praying. And praying can be hard when we're in this, this weird kind of state where um, days blur together and, and you know, People say, well, what, what can I pray for you? I don't know. I've been home for you know, three weeks. I don't know what to pray for. It can be hard, but it's, it's something that's worth attending to, something worth working on. What can, I, what can you pray for me for? How can we pray for each other? How can we pray for ourselves? And to do that is to speak to another person, to speak to God, this God who has shown his goodness and his mercy and his kindness throughout creation. And he's, a, he's beautiful. That's a beautiful thing we can do. We can read his word. We can spend time pouring through his word and reading it. Um, maybe since we don't have the commute, we got a little extra time. We can spend some extra time and read a couple extra pages. We can read books by other Christians that have been helpful to us, that encourage us, that draw us to the beauty of who he is and remind us of that glory. 
And then somehow in the middle of a pandemic with social distancing, we can serve because it, it, it's, it's a heart issue. It is a matter of love and love is real love when it acts, when it acts out, when it goes and it does something. Um, that's when we can do that. So it's hard. It's an uphill battle. It's, it's rough. We've got a lot of good things in our favor that's working in that direction, but we have to go out and we have to lay hold of these things and we have to fight to keep our heart trained on who God is, to remind ourselves regularly that he is beautiful, that he is good. So we fight the apathy that can set in, that, that social media can, can uh, bring to us. And I'm preaching to myself on that one. I spend way too much time on social media. I don't think it's good for my heart. It's definitely not good for my brain. My, short, my attention span is just dwindled. Um, so I've, we, we've got to pay attention to these things. We've got to work on these things. Why? Because God's wrath is revealed from heaven against ungodliness and unrighteousness. And we have no excuse. That's the center of what he said today is they are without excuse. We have no excuse. We have less of an excuse than they did because we've been given so much more. So if they didn't have an excuse, how much less will we? We have to fight for this. We have to wrestle through these things and, and struggle to find God delightful. You've got the Holy Spirit on your side. You've got the revelation on your side. And we've got this tremendous promise that someday, all of this stuff that wars against him, all of these things that are distorting our understanding, that are clouding our view, all of those will be wiped away and will be in the new heavens and the new earth, God and the Lamb dwelling right in our midst. And then we will be able to love the way we should. We will delight in what we should. Worship will be so much better then. But between now and then, we're halfway there. We're waiting for the redemption of our bodies. And so we have to struggle. So I just want to encourage all of us encourage one, one another. That's what we did at the men's retreat yesterday is we were encouraging each other. We were, we were spending time in fellowship. These are other believers who believe the same things we do. We're wrestling through these things together. We're having these big discussions. And that is what is hopefully training us to love God more, to see him as more beautiful, um, not less. So as we look at this question of why is God's wrath revealed against those who don't worship, it's, because, it's not because he needs the worship. Um, he says that repeatedly. If if I needed anything, would I tell you? I own the cattle on a thousand hills. What are you going to do for me? The reason his wrath is revealed against those who don't worship is because worship is not isolated. It winds up yielding a life that is not pleasing to God, that is at odds with his righteousness, that is at odds with who he is, because we're trying to fit other things in a place that they don't belong. And so that's the problem with the Gentiles. This is how it starts with the Gentiles. We're not done with them. we got some more work to do, but that sets up the issue. Don't miss the fact that it is a heart issue and it is a matter of worship before it is an intellectual issue and a matter of ethics. The ethics and the intellect will follow when the heart is, is tuned into the right things. And so that's the beginning of Paul's gospel, the bad news. People, why are people so messed up? This is why, is because they don't acknowledge who God is. They don't worship him rightly. This is why we need a savior. This is what we need to be saved from. This is what we need to be delivered from, is this kind of thing, so that the wrath of God doesn't fall on us. We'll get more of that as we continue on. But let me close us in a word of prayer now. Lord, you have created human beings to be worshipers. Lord, you created us for your glory you work with us. You are engaged with us. You keep us alive for your glory. And so, Lord, as we worship, we pray that you would be tuning our hearts to sing your praise. 
Lord, that we would find creation as beautiful and as marvelous as it is, second or third to you, that, that you would be first in our hearts and our minds. Lord, that we would love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind, and our neighbor as ourself, and then enjoy the world that you've put us in. So Lord, would you order our hearts? Would you, would you get those things right back in the right order so that the box will close, so that things will fit, so that it won't bulge? And so, Lord, we can't do it without you. Would you continue to work in us and redeem us from that, that disordered heart? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, let's just remind ourselves of the theme of the Book of Romans since we're still fresh into it. Um, for in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. That is our hope, is that we were righteous by living by faith. 